Praise the Lord. That's great. I think we can just have the benediction. <laughs> Something like that. Thank you. Uh, today is known in the culture as Halloween, but it's actually, of course, amalgamation of the word Hallowed Eve, the Eve before All Saints Day. It's on that day that Martin Luther, 502 years ago, chose to nail his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And I thought it would be helpful to start today with a Martin Luther story being All Saints Day. If you ever come into my office, uh, I might call it the principal's office, I don't know. If you ever come into my office, uh, you'll see on my wall uh, a picture of four pivotal quotes from the history of the church. And these are moments which define the church, moments where men and women of God from our past, it's the saints who before us who had the opportunity and they did. They said or did the right thing at the right time. And life and ministry are filled with moments like that when you'll be called to say or do the right thing. And it's amazing how many, many pastors and leaders at that moment do not say or do the right thing. And we're counting on you to say or do the right thing. And I, so I get inspired by these quotes daily that I might, in my own little, you know, tiny sliver of church history in my life, that I might always be one to say and do the right thing as God enables me. But to give you a background of this quote, I want to go back to, uh, and I shouldn't have the overhead here, of uh, Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Um, this is not the quote, but this is probably the most famous quote of Luther uh, which is not the one on my wall, but it's, this is the place where he, of course, made that famous stand where Luther, when asked to renounce his writing, said, if they contradict the word of God, I will renounce them all. But unless you can show me that they contradict God's word, I will not renounce them. And that famous quote, here I stand. One of the great three words of church history. But what you may not know is what happened after that, and it's that which is the quote I want to share, which is on my office wall, is Luther was, uh, this happened on April 26, 1521, and he had been cr- granted safe passage back to Wittenberg. By, but Elector the Frederick, uh, who was his protector, did not trust the safe passage. And so he decided to proactively uh, have Luther kidnapped. This is like a friendly kidnapping. Uh, In other words, before they kidnap you, I'll kidnap you. So he had Luther kidnapped and taken to Wartburg Castle for a year, almost a year that he spent there in hiding. And it was there that he, if you actually go and see, this is his study at Marburg Castle. If you go there, you can see that study to this day. And it was in that place where Luther reportedly threw an inkwell at the devil. Now we're getting close to my quote. Now, I don't know, I have never thrown an inkwell at the devil, but I sure wish I had the spiritual sensitivity to know which direction to throw it in. Because I would, you know, I can see it now someday. Dr. Tennant throwing an iPad at the devil. Our version of an inkwell. But he did that. And what I want to quote, which on my wall, is not 
that he threw an inkwell at the devil and whether he did or didn't and all that. But what he definitely recorded, what he said when he threw the inkwell at the devil. Do you remember what he said? Because what he said is very important. It's this that's on the wall of my office, and I have it here before you. Baptizatu sum, which means I am baptized. Let's say it together. I am baptized. That's what Luther said when he threw the inkwell at the devil. We're on this series of the means of grace, and today is baptism as a means of grace. It's here at this point where baptism stands as the seam between the old life and the new life. Baptism is that doorway between what we saw last time, this radical call and the radical transformation. Baptism is a doorway between our unregenerate life in the old Adam and our regenerate life in the new Adam. And our text this morning, Romans 6, should not be isolated from the rest of what Paul's argument is in Romans. One of the great curses of modern Bibles is that they have chapters and verses. And you can buy them, by the way, without chapters and verses. I highly recommend it. My wife and I read uh, in the mornings, uh, we did it right last year, we read through the whole Bible uh, without troubles and verses. Great practice. Of course, you can't find anything, but <laughs> it's great reminded that these chapters were not there. And Paul has been talking about how sin and death entered the world through Adam in chapter 5. That is the old self which must be put off. But the point of Romans 5 is to demonstrate just as sin, death, and condemnation spread to the entire human race through Adam, so now in Christ, the new Adam, second Adam, instead righteousness and reconciliation and eternal life is spreading to the entire human race. And so baptism is introduced in chapter 6, not as a new topic or a new theme, but as a sign or seal of the transition from the old life to the new life. Now, Paul has been extolling uh, the power of God's radical grace. And he's worried that you might think that this radical inclusive, all-embracing call of God. You know, while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you right where you are. Paul is concerned, as obviously was rightly needed because of today's context, that people would think that this was a dismissal of holiness. This wasn't a call to the radical transformation. So Paul opens the whole chapter by saying, verse six, chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? so that grace may abound or increase by no means. Shall we go on sinning? No, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And it is here that Paul introduces the theme of baptism. And if you read Romans up to this point, it probably and maybe should come as a bit of a surprise. You think he would say at this point, do you not know that all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ have been united to his death, and through faith were united to his resurrection. He doesn't say that. Instead, at this point, he says, all of us who put on, who have been baptized have been united to Christ in his death. And through baptism were united in his resurrection. Paul introduces the theme of baptism. 
Now, whenever, uh, many of you will be pastors someday, but regardless of your future as a Christian leader, whenever you mention the word baptism, you immediately, uh, your mind, maybe yours does too, goes into all the controversial questions which have divided the church over the years. What is the meaning of baptism? What is the proper mode of baptism? Who is eligible to be baptized, uh, believing adults or, or infants? Should, how about baptismal formula, Trinitarian or the name of Jesus? Is it a sacrament or an ordinance? Is it a sign or a seal? You see, the questions go on and on. But our very differences underscore how important, how vital this is for us. And for our salvationist friends, let me just say on behalf of those who are not Salvation Army, which don't practice physical water baptism, that even the salvationists from the very beginning said, no, our, we don't deny baptism. We simply believe that we're, we, are, we are baptized through our being immersed into the pain and suffering of the world. Thank God for that. It's a reminder to us that baptism is not merely outward things we do. It's also part of our entering into the uh, Christ identity. So baptism, both real and symbolic, is at the core of the church's identity. Now, if you take time to study every text in the New Testament related to baptism, you'll find that baptism and the meaning of it is actually unfolded to us uh, through four stories, four ways in which it's unfolded to us. And I want to look at the baptism today through the lens of these four stories and highlight them in order to give us the real meaning of, biblically of baptism. It is four metaphors pointing to one transformation, and the church should embrace all of these wonderful stories. And I'm going to give them to you in canonical order. Uh, the first story is the story of Noah and the ark. Now, baptism is clearly in the New Testament, a sign of cleansing and new life. We are delivered through water out of judgment and condemnation. So Peter, uh, St. Peter in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, this is what he writes. I'm, I'm quoting Peter here in his first epistle. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being built, in it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? He is saying we are, our baptism is our identity and it's empowered through the death and resurrection of Christ, but our baptism is symbolic of Noah and the ark. Baptism becomes the doorway into the church. And if you know church history, you'll know that the ark has been one of the dominant themes of what of the church. The church is the ark. And we are invited into the ark where we're saved from the life of, of, de of condemnation and death. In fact, this particular depiction of the ark uh, shows the, uh, the, the apostles and the church fathers in the ark uh, calling the, the world into this wonderful ark. And so we are saved. It, it connects with the primordial waters of creation out of which God brought his salvation and the created order, the primordial waters of physical birth that we are born out of water and even someday the new creation. But all of this is connected to the story of Noah and the ark. 
The second story that's told in Scripture it has to do with the story of the children of Israel being circumcised. And this in the New Testament becomes a sign of the covenant. And so that many, many Christians identify baptism with the, uh, the, the covenant and therefore the initial uh, Israelites who were circumcised before they entered into the covenant. And then, of course, this comes up in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, and Romans 4, 10 to 12. Listen to this. In him you also were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Remember, they were talking about people who are also Gentiles who may not have been circumcised physically. He goes on, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through life. So even the Old Testament, circumcision was already being spiritualized in Deuteronomy 10, Jeremiah 9. And so in the same way, baptism becomes a symbol of our entering into the covenant. So baptism is an outward sign and seal of the covenant with the people, God's covenant with the people of God. And this is a particularly cherished vision in the Reformed world. The third story uh, is the story of the death and resurrection of Christ. And this, of course, is the one that uh, our text draws upon today. Uh, in, in Romans, he says, all of us who are baptized in Christ, Jesus have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Also, Colossians 2.12. And you'll notice in the ancient world, there are many examples where they built the baptismal fonts under the ground, the level of the ground. So this was in the shape of the cross where you literally went down into the ground. You were baptized and brought up out of the water. And it was literally a reenactment of the death and resurrection of Christ. Pretty powerful image. And I think we ought to get one of those here in Esther's chapel. We ought to just work that out in your spare time. The fourth and final story is the story of <coughs> conversion, of putting off or putting on, being clothed with Christ. This is one of the least, most neglected of the four stories of, of a baptism. This comes from Galatians 3.27. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ, drawing on the whole theme of clothing, putting off, putting on, which is all throughout the New Testament, particularly Paul's writings. And this becomes a big tradition of groups who are actually literally clothed with robes as they are being baptized as a sign of being clothed with Christ. So you, what you see is the New Testament give us four distinct stories. Noah and the ark, children of Israel being circumcised, Christ's death and resurrection, and the story of Christian conversion being clothed with Christ. And all four of these stories are the stories of Christian baptism. In this particular image here, all through the New Testament and book of Acts, we find people being baptized as a sign of their conversion. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. The Samaritan believers, the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, Cornelius' household, Lydia and her household, the Philippian jailer and his household, Crispus, um, the synagogue ruler and his household, uh, the Corinthian believers, the Ephesian believers. All the New Testament is not only the book of Acts, only a kind of a story of church planting. It's also a compendium of baptisms. It's one of the most remarkable things about the early church. They believed 
and practice baptism. Now, if uh, you, from a tradition that emphasized the first two stories, Noah and the ark, and children of Israel getting circumcised, you typically will baptize infants, you will typically refer to it as a sacrament, and you will sprinkle people, just children. If you emphasize the latter two stories, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ and Christian conversion, you tend to see baptism as an expression of individual faith, and therefore you baptize a believing adults, you call it an ordinance, and you use as much water as you can find. But let me, let me simply say a word about that. This is not something the church should fight about. Because if you actually dwell within uh, traditions that baptize infants, and, you, and all, many, most of you do that, you'll notice that when you have infants baptized, it's connected to a confirmation service liturgically years later, right? Where that person will confess their faith in Christ and be fully received in the church. So baptism is linked to adult confession of Christ through the practice of the, of the, of the confirmation service. If you go into a service, a church that has adult baptism, they will have a dedication service that sounds a lot like what we do in infant baptisms where the church will confess their commitment to staying with that child, help that child come to faith, and then someday that child will grow up and profess faith, faith and be received in the life of the church. So the church actually has a very similar structure in all of this to create the same emphasis. Each of the four stories gives us a glimpse into the greater theology of baptism. And we need all four stories. Paul is the author of three of the four. The churches for too long has given themselves to only one of the stories or two of the stories. And so to show that our thing, if you have just that story, knowing the ark, or just that story of the circumcision, or that story of death and resurrection, or the story of being clothed, you miss the full story of what baptism is meant to us. We're always called to hear all four stories. Now, the second point Paul makes in this text is that baptism is our participation in Christ. Now, it is true that Paul, in this particular text, Romans 6, he is drawing upon the theme of death and resurrection. So he is giving us that third theme. But Paul makes another point, which in a deeper way connects us to all four stories. Paul slips in this word, homoiomatai. Homoiomatai. You must learn that word. Because this is a word only appears five times in the New Testament. But and it, and it came up, if you heard the translation today, it came up with only two words. We who united with him in a death like his. Okay, and what is important about that word? This is a word which is hardly barely noticed in translation, but what it's saying is allowing us to participate in something. In other words, the death and resurrection of Christ has a certain quality which allows us to participate in it. Now, this is really important because if you look at the places it's used, the five times, it's connected to three things. First, we participate in the transgression of Adam. It's used negatively of us in Romans 5, the previous chapter. So what that means is when Adam sinned in the garden, our view should not be, oh, Adam sinned way back then. And why in the world were we condemned for that? 
Why are we held accountable for what Adam did in the sin? He is the, you know, the fall of the human race. Why are we swept into that? Paul says, no, 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 you must understand Romans 5. Romans 5 is, we were in Adam when he sinned. Just like Levi was in the loins of Abraham when he tithed. Remember? It's the same point. We are, we are actually participate theologically and mystically with Adam in his rebellion. So we are there in the garden when he rebelled against God. The whole human race is in the loins of Adam. Now the good news is, therefore, that we are also able to participate in the death and resurrection of Christ. So when Christ dies on the cross, we don't just look back on it and say that happened back then. We are in Christ. Our old man, our old woman dies in Christ. And we are now raised with Christ. We participate with him in his death and resurrection. By the way, it's also used, thirdly, that Christ is able to truly participate with us in our humanity through the incarnation. This is Philippians 2, 7, Romans 8, 3. Christ actually enters into our experience. Now, one of the many ways that the modern world has done a disservice to the church historically through the ages and all saints' days that we can criticize our generation is with what they do with the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed always said that Jesus Christ became a man. All right, somebody, some clever person at some point, changed it in some modern renditions. He became a human being. This is not at all the purpose of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was not trying to make a biological point. Nobody denied that. Of course, Jesus did in the incarnation become a human being, a God-man, fully God, fully man. That's true. Jesus of Nazareth was a human being. But the point of the Nicene Creed is that he became a man. I mean, he fully participated in all of humanity. So that means when Jesus is walking the earth... When he resists the devil, guess what? You are resisting the devil in Christ. Praise the Lord. When Jesus uh, obeys the Father, you are obeying the Father in Jesus. You see, he is recapitulating the whole human race. The whole human experience has been recapitulated in Christ. He is re-walking the world that Adam failed to walk in. This new Adam did it. The Nicene Creed is celebrating that Christ encompasses the whole human race in the incarnation. It's not simply that he became a human being, though that's true. He also became fully identified with the whole of the human experience, just as we were in Adam. And Paul makes this point no less than five times in six verses. We're baptized into his death, verse 3. We were buried with him, in verse 4, and given new life. We are united with him in his death. We're united with him in his resurrection. We are crucified with him. We died with Christ. We will live with him. So therefore, when Luther said, when he threw his inkwell at the devil, and by the way, if you go to Marburg Castle, they can show you the ink spot on the wall. If when Luther threw the inkwell at the devil and he said, I am baptized, Luther is saying that I am in Christ. I belong to the baptized people of God. Thanks be to God. He is saying, there's a, there's a baptized one crying right now. That little child saying, I'm baptized. This is Luther saying, I am in the ark. I have been marked by the covenant. I have been buried and raised with Christ. I have been clothed with Christ. 
he's not just looking back on something. He is stating his status, which is sealed by his baptism. He's saying to the devil, you have no claim on me. See, we're not simply baptized by faith. That's true, but we're baptized into a faith. We're baptized into the collective experience of the people of God all through time. So to say I am baptized is not a statement of memory. It's a statement of status. I am baptized. Say that the next time you throw your inkwell or your iPad. Finally, Paul says we are living into what we are in Christ. This is one of Paul's classic indicative imperative constructions in this part of the passage. He loves to always begin. This is great theology where Paul begins with who you are in Christ. He repeatedly tells us who we are in Christ. He says, we died to sin. We are baptized into Christ. We are baptized in his death. We, we are united with the death and resurrection. We're united with him. The old life was crucified. We have died to sin. We live with him. All that is staying who we are, our status. But then he flips it. And then he begins to give us the commands. Once he's established our status, he then says, he command, imperative, commands us to live according to our status. He says, count yourselves dead to sin. Do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Offer yourselves to God. So what Paul is saying, the first word of the gospel to you is what God has done for you in Christ. What he sees right now when he sees every one of you, he sees who you are in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? When he sees me, he didn't see all the brokenness and issues and challenge. He sees who I am in Jesus. But then the gospel commands me to walk in that way, to walk in the fullness of Christ And this is what makes baptism a means of grace. And I love the fact that once a year we have, we have at other times too, but particularly a day like today, a high church service. Nothing against the other kind of services, but it reminds us that Christianity did not begin last Tuesday. Christianity did not begin last Tuesday. We are part of a great company of hosts. We're part of a great, great stream of saints who've gone before us who are there with us in the company of heaven. We're part of that great company, and we symbolize that. We have depth and breadth. Depth is church history. We are connected to everyone in church history, including Martin Luther, including thousands of others. And the breadth is, of course, global Christianity. We're connected around the world to all the saints who go before us. And so if you are tempted by the evil one, Pick up something and throw it at the devil. And say, baptizatu sum. Or if you prefer, I am baptized. That's easier to remember. Because this is what I want us to do to close this service. Because baptism was never simply meant to be something you remember as a past event. It's a status that you live in today. We're going to close with a hymn, Come, Let Us Join Our Friends Above by Charles Wesley. And we're going to have opportunity during the closing hymn, or you may choose to wait and do it during the recession, you know, the recession on the postlude on the organ. But I want everyone who is baptized 
to some point, you can carry your hymn book. We'll also have the words above on the screen. You can carry your hymn book with you or look on the screen. But I want you to come to this font, which is right here in the middle of the church. And I want you to stick your fingers into the water and say, I am baptized. Let it be a declaration of your status. If you come out this way and you touch the water, go around like that to, uh, to the other side so we won't get a traffic jam. But if we get a little traffic jam, it's a holy traffic jam. It's okay. But I want you to remember your baptism and also recall your status, who you are. And if you need to throw something to the devil while you're doing it, do so. Because God would say to each of us today, you are baptized. Thanks be to God. You can do it during the closing hymn or during the recessional if you'd like to participate. Thanks be to God. Amen.